Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So we are in Hebrews 12, 1 through 14. We've been going through Hebrews, working our way through Hebrews. We've just got a couple chapters left. And uh, I, I hope that it's been as encouraging to you as it is to me, because I just think it's great. I just love the, the beauty of the gospel, the depth of it, kind of the ancient feel of it. It's just um, so encouraging to remember that this is not just some sort of fashion or fad or newfangled idea that, that just kind of cropped up, but this is something that has depth and tradition and history and, and uh, just really eternity behind it. And um, so I hope that you've been able to see some of that as we've gone forward here as well. So, we actually read Hebrews 12, verse 1 last week, but we're going to read it again. 1 and 2, I think we read. We're going to read it again. It was a good cap to chapter 11, which was all about faith, heroes of the faith, sort of people from the Hall of Faith fame, Hall of Fame, Faith, Hall of, I don't know what you call it, Hall of Faith, and uh, people from that list and why faith is such a big deal, and it kind of connects that, but it also leads into the, the passage today, which makes sense. It's all one letter. So we're going to go back and read those first two verses again just to kind of reorient us, uh, ourselves and get us back in the right place. So Hebrews 12 starts off this way. Therefore, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? The entire book of Hebrews, but specifically the chapter 11 where he gives us this list of all these people. This is what the ancients were commended for, he says. All of these people in the history are, are commended for their faith, not for the things they did, not for the way they thought, not for having such brilliant ideas, not for whatever, but just for their faith, for trusting God, for looking ahead to the Messiah and believing God at each step along the way, believing the promises of God, believing that God is good and that God is faithful. And, um, and, that's what, and so because we have all these examples, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. I love this verse because it's even the reason we've named our church Focus. There's so many things to look at, right? There's beautiful things, and there's scary things, and there's things that make us mad, and there's things that make us happy. And, and, and there's not that anything is wrong with all those things, but it's so easy for us to be distracted, you know, like the, by the next shiny thing. Um, or as I am a little bit by my cat, who's threatening to pull down my equipment here, but I think we're okay. Um, so it's easy to be distracted, right? It's easy to be to have our attention wander. And I love that this verse just tells us, you know, just just throw off everything that hinders. Look, if it if this keeps you from trusting God, be like those people who just focus on trusting God. That everything came down to that. Nothing really got in the way of that, you know? And because what's more important than the promises of the Almighty God, who's in control of the universe, that he loves you? So he says, he says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, right? Look into that finish line, not getting distracted in the race and going off on a detour or, or kind of forgetting what we're doing. And then he tells us about Jesus, who had a, a similar sort of faith, right? That he, obviously his eyes were fixed on himself, <laughs> so to speak, but, but he was focused on the mission and on the task on our behalf. In some ways, he was focused on us and, and, and the gospel, which also is much bigger than just us. But he says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How was he able to endure the cross? Because he knew where he was going. He had his eyes fixed on the finish line. 
From the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he says this, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So this is what we're really going to talk about tonight, is that he says, consider him. This is what he's telling us, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Think about him. Ponder him. And he gives us his example of Jesus, how Jesus, for the joy set before him, he scorned the shame of the cross. The cross was a shame. It wasn't like he, 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 he relished it. He didn't endure the cross because that was joy. He did it for the joy set before him at the other side of the cross. His, the hardship that he went through, the suffering that he went through, he was able to keep his eyes fixed on something bigger. And the author of Hebrews is, off, is encouraging us to do the same, and specifically for us, he's encouraging us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Consider him. Think about him. And what's the reason he says consider him? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, the people in, that he's writing to in the Hebrews at that time were experiencing persecution. They were experiencing hardship. And part, I, I think what we begin to see is that part of the struggle that they have wasn't merely theological. Right? Some of it definitely was. They were wrestling with this idea of, are we betraying the, the law if we accept Jesus? Or, it, you know, instead of seeing it as a fulfillment of that, they, they were wrestling with that. Are we betraying God if we take this, this, this human Messiah and, and we think that he fulfilled something. Are we, are we betraying God if we aren't doing the priesthood the way we did? And he's come to explain why they're not. But I think what we're seeing here also is that there's another aspect to this. It was, it was sort of easy in a sense, not easy, but it was a different sort of hard to theologically kind of thread the needle when there wasn't opposition. But part of the problem is there's opposition. Now there's people who are persecuting Christians specifically. And so if you're a Jew on the fence, you've got further incentive to back away from Christ, right? You can say, well, I, I never thought he was the Messiah. I can kind of go with the Jewish thing because there's less persecution, perhaps, of the Jews. And so he's saying he wants them to not lose heart. He wants them to endure whatever hardship they're feeling. And he gives Jesus as the example, and he says the way to do it is to consider him. Something, something about considering Jesus will help us not grow weary. When we lose heart, we grow weary, right? When there's not a purpose, when we can't see hope behind our lives, that's when we get tired when the dailies become daily, right? You know, life is hard to live because it just goes day by day by day. And when we get caught up in those day by days, or when there's a trial that seems like it will never end, which all trials seem like they will never end. When we're caught up in the middle of that, that's when we get tired, right? We can not get so tired if there's something to look forward to, if there's some hope ahead of us. And so he says, you know, when you lose heart, you grow weary, when you grow weary, it's hard to endure. Enduring becomes impossible when there's no end. So you lose heart when you lose purpose. And we lose hope when we lose heart. So consider, keep your eyes fixed on the finish line. Keep, consider Jesus, because that, he says, will help you not grow weary and not lose heart. So that's one of the first things he says is consider him so that you will have hope. Because that's what, that's what he really means, right? How do you not lose hope? Well, you have hope. There's hope in something more. There's hope that this isn't all there is, that we won't just get stuck in the daily dailies forever, that it's unending. It's not like that. Consider him so that we will have hope. And here's what I want you to think about as we go forward through the rest of this passage. It's so important to understand, and the author of Hebrews is telling us right off the bat, he tells us again several times, the reason he's writing this and the rest of what he's going to write in this chapter is to give you hope, is to give you encouragement. Right? The reason it's important to remember that is because if for some reason, as you read through the passage, it makes you feel burdened, 
or it makes you feel hopeless, or it makes you feel despair, or it makes you feel tired, or it makes you lose heart, then we're clearly not reading what the author of Hebrews is trying to say, right? We're not picking up what he's putting down. You know, we're not really getting it. We're getting something else. We're bringing our own fears and our own maybe previous teachings or whatever it is to the table, which we do. But one way that we can know sort of whether we're on track or not is are we experiencing what the author is clearly wanting us to experience, which in this case is encouragement. In this case is hope. So as we go forward, let's bear that in mind that, that this is the whole point is to consider him so that we will have hope. If when you reflect on God and you meditate on God, it doesn't give you hope. There's something about your meditations on God that are not accurate to who God is. That's what I think. <laughs> because he is a God of hope. So let's keep going. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood. So right away, here's one of the things that I think we can read a couple of different ways. And, and, and if, we're, if we're bringing our own fears or our own guilt and our own shame to things, which we do, it's kind of inevitable in some ways, then it's possible to read this as a, like a, a chastisement, right? Like the author of Hebrews is saying, you ungrateful wretch, you know, do you know how hard it was for Jesus to do what he did, and yet you're, you are just sitting around doing nothing, right? That's not, that's not what he's saying, right? It's not, it's not like the, the uh, stereotypical guilt-driving mom. I'm not saying all moms are that way. I'm saying stereotypical guilt-driving mom, whatever that is, who's like, you know, you, oh, I labored with you for hours and hours and hours, you know? It's, Jesus isn't doing that. This isn't what the author is saying. He's not saying, you haven't resisted the point of shedding your blood, but Jesus did, so be more grateful. That's not what he's saying, because that, that wouldn't really give you encouragement. That wouldn't give you hope. That would just make you feel even worse about not enduring well. And that's why I don't think that's what he means. I don't think he's saying that. He's not saying consider yourself, right? That's what we do when we hear it, when we respond to it, we're considering ourselves. We're like, well, let me look at how far apart I am from what Jesus did. Jesus did this, but let me think about how bad I am. No, he's saying consider Jesus. So focus on what Jesus did, not upon whether you're matching up to that or not. That's not his point. His point here, he says, you have not resisted the point of shedding your blood. That is something they know. They know that, not again for guilt, but they know what it would be like. They know how hard it is to go as far as they've gone, to endure as much as they have. And so knowing that, he just wants them to think about Jesus, not from a standpoint of, oh, we're wretches, but from a standpoint of, wow, that Jesus was willing to endure and endure and endure to the point of death. Why on earth would he do that? Consider that, he says. Consider what would lead Jesus to go that far. What would lead the God of the universe to give up everything, to die on a cross? What would lead him to do that? That's what we're considering. We're considering him, not us. And he's only pointing out that we haven't gone that far so we can see how amazing it is and recognize it must take something really special, really motivating, really driving to lead him to do that. So when we face trials, which fall short of actually being executed, and we want to bail, and we want to lose heart, we recognize what we want to do is do anything to get out of that trial. And Jesus could have at any moment called down the angels from heaven and gotten out of this trial, and yet he didn't. And the author of Hebrews doesn't want us to think about how bad that makes us. He wants us to think about how good that makes Jesus. He wants us to think about why would Jesus do that and the answer is, what scripture tells us over and over, the reason he didn't bail in the garden when he said, not my will, but yours, the reason he didn't bail at the very beginning when Satan tempted him with power without having to go through this, the reason it was part of the plan for all of the existence of the universe, 
the reason that God didn't bail even before he created everything and say, you know what, this is too much work. It's a very clear reason we're told over and over. It's because he loves us. And you might say, well, no, it's because he wants to glorify himself. You know what, guys? It's the same thing. And here's why. When God glorifies himself through the gospel, what is he doing? He's showing people what a great, good, gracious, loving God he is. The fact that he loves us is a glory to him. So yes, it is to glorify himself, and it is because he loves us. And those are not two separate things that competition with each other. Those are the same thing. That is how great and glorious our God is. That's why we should consider him, because he's that amazing. Because he endured the cross because of his great love for us. We're told that in scripture over and over and over. It was the joy set before him to be in a relationship with us. I once heard somebody say, and it, it, it's kind of pithy, but it, it makes sense, and it, I think it, it puts it in terms we can sometimes understand. That what it comes down to is Jesus would rather die than not have a relationship with you. <laughs> That's what he showed us. It goes on, so he says, consider him, right? Consider him so that you will remember how much you are loved. He's going to go on and make this point another way. He says, have you completely forgotten his word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And you might say, well, we were doing good. Now why do we have to talk about discipline, right? You're just talking about how much the Lord loves me. But notice for the author of Hebrews, this is not a separate different idea. This is actually for him proof. It's another way that God proved his love for us. Not merely by the death of Jesus, but because in Proverbs it tells us that when the father rebukes or disciplines a child, it's because of his love for the child. And we're told that's how the Lord is with us. In one sense, the other of Hebrews, recognizing how big God is. Remember, one thing the Jews understood was how big God was, how other he was, how holy he was, how little he owed us, right? And coming from that perspective of how big God is, why would God discipline us at all? I don't discipline kids I don't know. <laughs> why, why would I do that? Why would I try to raise them? Also, the term discipline can carry a lot of different connotations depending on your background and your experience. We're going to look at that in a second, that the fathers don't discipline perfectly. Mothers don't discipline perfectly. And that leaves us with all sorts of questions about what discipline is, but in general, just understand, discipline is training. And sometimes that training is corrective, right? Like, oops, you went the wrong way, now I'm going to teach you so you don't do that again. But sometimes it's just preparatory, like, like you discipline yourself when you're going to run a marathon. You train to get ready to run the marathon. That doesn't mean that you know, when you're training yourself, you're being mean to yourself, or you don't love yourself. It may mean the opposite. So discipline is training, and sometimes it's corrective. Yeah, absolutely. If I'm, if I'm training wrong, if I'm training to be in, the, the, uh, in Wimbledon playing tennis, and I'm hitting wrong, someone can train me by teaching me how to do it right. So it can be corrective, and it can be preparatory. But the point that the author of Hebrews is making is, again, this word of encouragement, he says. Have you forgotten this word of encouragement? So again, his goal is to encourage, not to make you feel worse. And he says, remember that when you're experiencing the discipline and the hardship, part of that is because God loves you, right? He's, he's helping you grow. 
So again, he wants you to consider him. Even in the midst of hardship, he wants you to consider him. Because it will help you consider how much he loves you. Two aspects. One is remember how much he went through for you. The fact that he went through such trials, does that mean he was a wretch and a terrible person? Absolutely not. He was sinless. But he did it for you. And the fact that you go through discipline doesn't always mean you're a wretch and a terrible person. Sometimes it's corrective, but sometimes it's not even that. And what it does mean is it's another example that God is invested in your life. And he's invested on a regular basis in your life. So if, if this idea of discipline here is making you feel guilty or ashamed, then that's not the message the author is going for, obviously. That's not what he's intending to do. He's intending to bring encouragement. And he goes on with the encouragement and says this, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. Well, what's the point? Why is he telling us to endure hardship as discipline? Well, it comes back to that same idea, that discipline is not simply wasted pain. That the hardship isn't wasted pain. I really like the fact here, and I don't want to make too much of this because maybe it's just a fluke of the language, but I like the fact that he doesn't say all hardship is discipline. He doesn't make that statement, but he encourages us to endure all hardship, I think, as if it's discipline. Now, now let me be clear. Again, if you're thinking discipline means God is mad at me, then you should not be thinking of all hardship that way. <laughs> but if you're thinking of all hardship as training you, if you're thinking all hardship as a sign that God, that whether he allows it or causes it, however you look at it, that he's actually moving towards a purpose with you, that he's creating something beautiful through you and in you, then I think it's okay to see all of that as discipline because it means all of that has a purpose. It means that all of it is going somewhere. No pain is wasted. No pain is sort of useless or fruitless, right? Again, we lose hope. We grow weary when there's no purpose to things. So I think it's an opportunity to see that God will bring something beautiful out of the pain. It doesn't mean that God is always creating it. It doesn't mean that all hardship even is discipline. Like with Jesus, I don't think it was. And it isn't always with us. But somehow having a mindset that there's always purpose, that God can bring fruit out of all of it, at least means that it's not only worthless, fruitless pain. He goes on, he says, for what children are not disciplined by their father? He's like, I mean, and again, this is rhetorical. Of course, there can be examples where that doesn't happen, but we do understand that a father who completely neglects his children and never corrects or disciplines is also probably never doing other things for them and is, in fact, a neglectful father. We understand that it is normal for fathers and mothers to discipline their children, to train them. That's part of our job. They don't know anything. And then they grow up under us and we teach them. He says, if you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, so I love how he's going to give this hypothetical and then say, but I understand you're not really there, right? But he says, if you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. He's forestalling that somebody might say, well, my life isn't so bad. I guess God doesn't love me. He doesn't even want them to go there. He's saying, look, everybody goes through discipline. Everybody has difficulties in their life. It's ridiculous to say you don't. I understand. I've had moments in my life where I felt unfairly sort of blessed. I've been like, wow, my life is not as hard as so-and-so's. Stop the comparison. Never helps. Everybody has struggle. Everybody undergoes discipline. Everybody has hardship. And he says, if you didn't, it would be, you know, it would be like you're illegitimate. You weren't a true son or daughter at all. It would be like having a father who didn't discipline you. Moreover, I love this part. We have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. And I don't know about your situation, whether you respect your father or not, but again, this is a general statement. We understand that when they do it, they do it because they love us in, in, in good situations, when it's done properly. But 
You say, but it's not always done properly. Well, the author of Hebrews knows that. I love this next sentence. He says this. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? His comparison is going to be, you know, our, our Father's discipline is and we respect it. How much more should we respect God? And there's a reason he's making that contrast and he's going to make it clear. Why should we respect God more if our Father's discipline is? Maybe they didn't do a good job, maybe they did, but why should we respect him more? Here's why. They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplined us for our good. I love the parallel contrast. This is, a, this is an intentional contrast in parallel, right? Here's the, the distinction. As parents, we discipline for a little while, right? Until our kids get old enough. And we do it as we think best. On the other hand, when God disciplines, he actually does it for our good. The implication is here is that when we do what we think is best, sometimes we're just wrong, right? Sometimes our discipline is actually incorrect. We're not very good at discipline. That's what I think. We do our best, we train our best, but we have our own weaknesses, our own frailties, our own insecurities, our own flaws, our own angers, all of that. And so we don't discipline very well. We do the best we can, which I think every parent in the world can hear this and go, yeah, amen. <laughs> we do the best we can, but God doesn't just do the best he can. What God disciplines, it's actually for our good. So it's kind of like the, the, the contrast is, you know, we hope it's for our children's good, and we do our best, but God does what actually is best for his children's good. He's never wrong. He gets discipline exactly right all the time. He's never too harsh, right? He's never too lenient. It's always exactly right. It may not look that way to us, but that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. God will take all hardship and use it to train you perfectly. If you look at it that way. And be encouraged by that, he's saying. Be encouraged by that. Don't be discouraged to think, oh my gosh, all hardship is discipline. I'm just a wretch. I'm terrible. I have to be corrected all the time. That's not what he's saying. He's saying endure all hardship as proof that God loves you and that he knows exactly what he's doing and he'll always do it exactly right. Because we respect our fathers who did their best even though we know, we all know, sometimes they were bad at it. Sometimes I'm bad at it. But God is never bad at it. God is perfect in all his discipline. He does what's actually good for us. So I love that. And then he goes on and says this line. He says, in order that we may share in his holiness. This is what the training is for. I talked about training for a marathon. You know what you're training for. You're training to run the marathon. You're training to play Wimbledon. You're training to, to play tennis. You know what the training is for. But what is the training for here? It's to share in God's holiness. We've talked about the idea of holiness throughout the book of Hebrews. It's such a broad term. And we tend to confuse it or think it only means sort of purity, um, a, a sort of austere, you know, asceticism, you know, denial of things. That, that isn't what holiness means. That sometimes it's reflected in a purity. But what holiness means is otherness, being called out, being special. We talk about God is holy. It's a way of describing the fact that he's just so completely different from us, right? He is, he, he is just in ways we barely can understand. He is good in ways we barely can reach. He is loving in ways that we can barely begin to approximate with each other. He's so other. He's so much bigger. The whole, the whole tent and the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies is to emphasize that fact that he is not like us. He's very different from us. 
But then the author of Hebrews tells us we've been called into the Holy of Holies. It isn't that God just simply came out of the Holy of Holies, that he made himself less special, that he decided to, to kind of tamp down on his otherness and just say, well, I guess I'll just be like you guys. That would be so disappointing. This is the problem with every movie that has God in it, is that God is always disappointing, right? No matter what you do with him, he's going to be disappointing because he's always going to end up just being like us. That's why all the Greek gods and all the Norse gods, they're all disappointing. They end up being even worse than us, usually. But that's not the Christian God or the Jewish God. He's other and he remains other. He remains special and called out, holy and set apart from everything else in the universe. But what's amazing is he calls us to share in it. He calls us to be in the ark with him, or in the Holy of Holies with him, not in the ark, that'd be cramped. But he calls us to be in the Holy of Holies with him. He calls us to be with him. And, and he wants us to share in his specialness, his called outness. So what are we being trained for? We're trained, being trained to be different. We're being trained to be different than the rest of the world. Not, and you know, it's easy to just be different. <laughs> and in fact, most people who work really hard to be different are all the same. But God is calling us to an actual difference. To, to, a, to a love, to a hope, to a faith, to a lifestyle, to ability to rejoice in trials, to a, to a perspective on God and other people, to an ability to not judge, to an ability to not, not have to just defend ourselves all the time. He's calling us to a difference. And that's what he's training us for. He's training us to be like him, to be other, to be different. To stand out in that sense. There are a lot of ways to be different. But God is training us to be different in his way. Just being different is not a shortcut for that. In fact, it's often an end run that gets us nowhere. But all of this is to say, hardship is not without purpose. God redeems that pain to train us. And he trains us to be like him. Which means, when we consider him, we not only will have hope. Because we can remember how much we're loved. But we can remember that life has purpose. I think in the middle of trials, life begins to feel purposeless a lot, right? Sometimes the trial itself is a feeling of purposelessness. You may look at your life and say, everything's fine, but I just feel like there's no purpose. And the answer to that, says, says the author of Hebrews, is consider him. I have found that when we begin to think life is purposeless, and we really wrestle to find purpose, most of the time what we do is we consider ourselves. We spend a lot of time getting very introspective, very reflective, trying to figure out who we are, where we fit, what our personality type is. All of that's fine, but you're never going to find your purpose there. It might give you a little boost here and there, but ultimately it's going to leave you flat because your purpose isn't in that. Your purpose is being like God, being trained to be like Him in His otherness, and you're only going to understand that at all if you consider Him. Consider Him so that you will have hope. Consider Him so that you remember how much you are loved, consider him, so that you remember that life has purpose. The author of Hebrews goes on to make a really, I think, important but obvious statement. He's, he's really good at, at bringing the theological down to the real and saying, just let's be clear, let's be honest, let's be nitty-gritty here. And the next statement he says is, no discipline seems pleasant. <laughs> he's not saying, oh goody, if you think this way, you'll face any hardship and you'll never be unhappy. That's not what he's saying. And, that, and it's, it's, it's so transparent when you meet people who think that their religious duty is to pretend that they never struggle. Isn't that just really transparent that they're struggling in a very different way? And, and isn't it kind of a shame that there isn't, isn't room for them in their mind to struggle openly and know that they can still be loved and still have hope 
and still have purpose? In fact, I think when we don't remember these things, this is when we tend to pretend things are okay. Right? If, we don't, if we're afraid there's no purpose and we're afraid that we're not loved if we're, if we're struggling, then we might just pretend we're okay so people will think we're still loved and still have purpose. But it's okay. Discipline is unpleasant. No discipline seems pleasant, right? Not some. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. But painful. It's not only not pleasant, it's painful. It's painful. Training is painful, but later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. By the way, you want some proof that when I speak of discipline as training, there it is. He's saying that's what it is. It's tra it trains you. And in the same way that when you're running or preparing for a marathon, it's not pleasant, but later on it produces a harvest of being able to run the marathon. In the same way, righteousness and peace are part of that holiness, part of that difference that God is leading us to. An otherness of peace, it's amazing. Even scripture talks about the fact that when people see people of peace, people aren't complaining, people aren't grumbling, people aren't anxious, people aren't worried. When people see people of peace, they see it as other. It is such a part of our lives. It is such a normal part of human existence to not have peace. If you thought you were unusual because you can't find peace, let me clarify. Again, it is such a part of our normal existence to not have peace. That the training and the discipline that leads us to experience peace is anotherness. It's something that stands out. And it comes from the training and the discipline that God is giving us. And righteousness, just that idea of, of God's standards of rightness. Loving and justice and, and hope and, and, and purity, these are all standards come from God. As we approach that, it's not because we consider ourselves, it's because we consider Him. But this is really important. This leads to a verse which is so important we get right. Because I think there's two ways to read this. And it makes a big difference how you read it. Right? So just to remind you where we are before we go on to the next verse. First thing is, he says, discipline is hard, but it's worth it. It's not pleasant, it's painful, but it will produce a harvest. So he says that. It's hard, but it's worth it. It's hard now, but it's worth it later. It's not hard, it's not worth it now. <laughs> it was that. But it's worth it later. It's hard now, and God does it perfectly well. That's the other thing he tells us. God knows exactly what he's doing. Don't worry that he's forgotten, that he's going to get a, you know, that, he, that he's not treating you gently. He knows that you're only dust of the earth. He knows how fragile we are. It's not fun, but it will be worth it later. And God does it perfectly. So that's where we are. That's what he said so far, right? That God disciplines us for our good, and he does it perfectly. It's not fun. It's hard. It's hard. And then he says this, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Now, this is one of my favorite verses, but it did not used to be one of my favorite verses, because the way I used to read it is this. God's going to discipline you, and it's going to be hard, so buck up. Right? That's how we read it. God's going to discipline you, and it's hard, so buck up. Strengthen your arms. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, you feeble, weak person, you. That's how I kind of read it. And I'm just, you know, the whole idea that we have to be a pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of guy, that's just tiring. It's actually impossible, right? You can't pick yourself up by your bootstraps. That's a cartoon physics move. There's no way to do it. But that's what it feels like we're being told to do. And so often in our teachings, that's what we hear. God's going to discipline you. Life is hard, so tough it out. When going gets tough, the tough get going. Look. <laughs> If that's what he's saying, I'm not encouraged. 
If that's what he's saying, I don't have hope. If that's what he's saying, I'm missing the purpose because I can't do it. I just, just be honest, I can't do it. I know some of you out there maybe can, you know? More than I can. But I can't. And I'm not sure any of us can in the long run. Not, not really. Not a move towards that otherness. So if that's not what he's saying, if he's not saying strengthen yourself, buck up, get going, be tough, if that isn't what he's saying, what is he saying? The good news is, it's not what he's saying, and it's in the text that it's not what he's saying. In fact, the next verse will make it clear, but before we get there, let's even just look at this text, because there is one thing, I do not often go back to original language, because frankly our translations are fantastic, but here we have an issue where there just isn't an English translation in the same way, and it's this. In the Hebrew and the Greek, both, there's a plural you, right? There's a singular you and a plural you. The, the closest we would have, and I sometimes wonder if we should translate like this sometimes, the closest we would have would be like y'all, right? In Texas, they have a single you and a plural y'all, right? In New Mexico, where I live, it's a single you and a plural you guys, right? So, so we do sometimes kind of have them, but that's what this is. This is a y'all. This is you guys. This is not you. See, and this makes a lot of difference because here's what he's saying. He's not saying, buck yourself up. He's saying, discipline is hard. Life is hard. So help each other. Help each other. Look around. Who's feeling weak right now? Weakness is not a sin. It's a reality. Who's feeling weak right now? Who just cannot stand up? Whose just arms are just failing them? Well, you go and you strengthen them. You strengthen their arms and their knees. You do it as a community. You help each other. In fact, this really relates to the idea that God's discipline is perfect in a really beautiful way. Because I think what he's saying here is not, life is really hard, so therefore toughen up. What he's saying is, God disciplines perfectly so that you, community of God, don't have to do it. See, I grew up thinking, for lots of reasons, I, I'm not sure anybody actually taught me this, I think some people did, but I, I'm not going to blame my community I grew up in, because I learned a lot of great things from the communities of God that I grew up in. But somewhere along the way, I got it in my head that part of our job as church, and even in my first years as a pastor, I got it in my head that my job as a pastor was to discipline people, that that was part of it, that it was my job to figure out how to how to discipline them. And, and it, sometimes it even felt like our job in accountability circles was to always hold everybody's feet to the fire. I think I have heard people say that. That our job is to hold the feet to the fire and to make sure that we make it tough on people so they never give up. Which I don't know about you, but if you always make it tough on people, on me, I'm going to give up. Remember, I'm not as strong as some of you, but that's the reality. But the beautiful message here in the author, the author of Hebrews is giving is that God disciplines perfectly. So it's going to happen, and it's going to be painful, and life is going to be hard enough, and your job as a community is not to pile on. Your job as a community is not to kick a guy when he's down. Your job as a community is not to take advantage of the weak who are struggling and kind of push them down and rise up to the top of the community. Your job in the community is not to toughen them up. Your job in the community is to strengthen their arms and their knees. Your job is to lift them up. Your job is to help them. And you're not working against God. This is part of the package. 
God says, I'll discipline because I do it right. I do it with love. And I do it perfectly. You really are bad at it. So don't even try. But what you can do, what I have equipped you to do, is support each other. Is love each other and make it easier for each other. You know, you can see that this is what he's saying when he goes on to the next verse. Because he says, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. It's clear here he's talking plural, right? Because he can't be saying to the lame, make level paths for your feet. If you're lame, you can't, ma you can't make level paths for your feet. If you're lame, you're lame. But if there's people in your group who are lame, who are unable to walk, they've just been so beaten down by things, can you make their path level? Can you smooth out the bumps and the valleys? Can you do everything you can to take the rocks out of the way? Make the journey easier for them, not harder. And don't just stand back and say, go, you can do it. That is okay. That's part of what we do. But can you actually make the way easier? Rather than simply encouraging them they can climb that next hill, can you actually dig that hill and level it out? Because that's what he says. Because otherwise... The lame don't have time to heal. They don't have time to rejuvenate and restore. They just become disabled. Life is going to beat us down. But the community of God, the church, is called. Our job is to give people time to heal. Is to help make the road easier for them. Is to make the journey easier for them. Consider him, says the author of Hebrews, so you'll have hope. Consider him so that you'll remember how much you are loved. Consider him so that you remember life has purpose and consider him so that you are free to love others. It's a weird thing about religion, any religion. It's a weird thing even about ethics and, and, and moral sort of approaches to life. I'm in favor of all those things. But it's a weird thing that oftentimes when we get into a kind of a mindset about, a kind of a religious and ethical mindset, we forget to love people. Which seems weird. Seems like that should be part of any religious or ethical mindset. But sometimes we even begin to feel like we don't have permission to love. It gets so complicated. We get so confused. We're like, well, is this tough love or is this bad love or is this enabling? I, I get it. There's stuff. But can we just start from the premise that we're free to love people? And yeah, sometimes it'll be hard to figure out what that is, but we got to start there. <laughs> we are free to love people. And I just know even again, and, and in, in my experience, and even as a pastor, there were times that I wanted to love somebody and I thought, is it right to love them? And again, I get that sometimes something can look loving and we can mess up. But these days, I'm more inclined to err on the side of thinking, doing what looks like love. And if I messed up, then I'll correct it later if I can. But I would rather err on the side of what I think is love than err on the side of doing what's right and not love somebody. I don't know if that makes sense, but the bottom line point, it does to me, but the bottom line point is we're free to love. If you're feeling a lack of permission to love people, the author of Hebrews is telling us when you consider Jesus, what you'll discover is you have permission to love people. You give them freedom to love them. If there's anything that you learn when you go through the Gospels and you look at the life of Jesus, is that there's so many times that people around him were embarrassed by the things he did because he took an opportunity to love somebody, and the rest of the crowd said, that's embarrassing. Don't love those kids like that. Those kids shouldn't be climbing on you. Don't love that woman. She's not a woman you should be allowing in your presence. 
don't love me, says Peter, and wash my feet. That's just weird. <laughs> right? Right? If there's anything we see from Jesus' life, so he encourages us to take our permission to love people. Now, we all know you can use anything as an excuse to do whatever you want. That's not what I mean. But I do mean you're actually free to love people, to make the journey easier. In fact, this is one of the core tenets of focus. This is a stated purpose in Focus Church, because I think it's so important. And this verse is one of the verses we use to make this point, to illustrate that this is a concept in Scripture, is that the church, the purpose of the church, among the purpose of church to disciple, part of discipleship is this conviction that our job is that we are here to make the journey easier for one another, not harder. We're here to make it easier for one another. If you want to know a little bit more about that, I posted a video earlier this week on the Focus Church page. It's really, a, it's really to Focus Church, just thanking them for being part of Focus and, and talking about some of the things that I'm just amazed at the community that we have right now. And in there, I talk a little bit about making it easier for one another. If you want to go back and watch that, you can, you can get more of that, of how it kind of plays out in Focus. But, but it's here in Hebrews that we draw that from, that that's what we're doing. So God disciplines, life's going to be hard. So make the journey easier for each other. And he goes on to talk with Think a little bit about how we do that. He says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Okay, really, every effort, truly, just, just be honest with yourself. Nobody's listening to your brain. To your, nobody's there. The microchip's not there. Nobody's listening to what's in your head right now. Just think about it for a moment. Make every effort to live in peace. Let's just be honest, right? We usually make minimal effort to live in peace. I'm just telling you the truth. Usually we make minimal effort to live in peace. And as soon as somebody kind of disrupts what is peace for us, we don't even try. We're just like, whatever. I don't have to deal with this. Occasionally, sometimes we make a lot of effort. Sometimes we make a lot of effort. But how often do we make every effort? Really? How often do we expend everything we've got to live at peace with people. I know some people, some Christians, who don't even think that's a good goal. They would say living at peace with people is compromise, is sellout. Look, every effort doesn't include compromising God. It doesn't include forgetting who Jesus is. And, and living at peace with people doesn't just mean living without overt argument. It means there's peace in you with them, which if they're abusing you isn't true. So make every effort to live at peace with everyone and to be holy. Oh, there it is. Make every effort to live at peace with everyone and to be holy. What's that holy? Other? Different? Remember how peace was one of the marks of holiness? It's all here. We're being trained to be different. And part of that difference, part of that doing that is making the journey easier for each other and being at peace with people. Not feeling like we always have to make them be exactly like us. Not feeling like we always have to get them to agree with us on everything. But learning to love them with the differences. And being at peace with them. Not holding on to grudges or bitterness or resentment or anger or judgment or whatever it is. And then being different. Being different. Because these are part of the ways we're different. When you see somebody who has hope, who knows that they are loved... That changes you. When you see somebody who remembers their life as purpose and who has a freedom from all this to love others, do they not appear other? Isn't that so different from what you see in the world? Of 
course it is. And how do we get there? Consider him. And then the author of Hebrews ties it all up in a nice little circle because he says this, be holy. Why? Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> I think we just went in a circle. Because he says, consider him. See the Lord. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And as you do that, endure hardship as discipline, and learn to love each other, and learn to be at peace with everyone, so that you will be different, you will be other. Let that training work in your life. As you consider him, you'll be trained, and as you're trained, you'll be holy, you'll become other, you'll become different, you'll move that direction, and as you do, you'll see the Lord, because without otherness, you can't see the Lord. The beautiful thing is this isn't a trap. It's a beautiful cycle. Sometimes we talk about a vicious cycle, right? A vicious cycle is where one thing happens, it produces another bad thing, and that bad thing produces the same bad thing we started with, and you go in a circle. This is like a benevolent cycle. You fix your eyes on Jesus, and you begin this benevolent cycle of becoming more holy, and as you become more holy, you see Jesus better. And as you see Jesus better, you become more holy, and as you become more holy, you see Jesus better. Please hear me again. Becoming holy is not the same as becoming self-righteous. Becoming holy is not the same thing as becoming superior. Becoming holy is being different than the rest of the world in love and hope and faith and peace. You want to see God? Stop even worrying about living better than the people around you. That's not what being different is. Stop worrying about saying, well, I'm doing better than they are. Because that standard is way too low, friends. Way too low. You want to actually live differently and be different? You want to actually follow a different standard of love and peace? Consider him. That's where it starts. It doesn't start by considering yourself. It doesn't start by making a list of your failings and working from there. Benjamin Franklin famously in his autobiography he has a list of ways he's going to get better. And he makes a list of the values that he wants to improve and excel at. And it's a noble list. It's a great list. But at the very beginning of that list is chastity. And he never got any further than that. <laughs> that's the truth. Because that's not what it's about. It's not about considering yourself. It's about considering him. Keeping your eyes fixed on him. And laying aside the hindrance and the entanglement of sin. And as you keep your eyes fixed on him, he will train you. And he will make you more like him. Holy and other and then you will be at peace and hope and faith and love and you'll see Jesus even better. So fix your eyes on him. Start there. That's where it comes from. And that's, we're going to stop. We're going to pick up here next week. That's why we're only going through verse 14. Because I want us to be clear. I want us to think about this. I want you to take the next week to fix your eyes on Jesus. To lay aside everything that distracts the entanglements, the hindrances, and fix your eyes on Jesus. Because that's who he is. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.